Good morning. Guys, <laughs> <sighs> 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 we're playing musical chairs. Yeah. We're talking about musical chairs, which is where you set a bunch of chairs in a circle, yeah. and the music plays, and it's like really noisy and loud, and all the kids scramble, you know, and then suddenly the music comes to a screeching halt. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, I don't have a chair. There's not enough chairs. Like, I think Brian Regan did a, like a skit on this. There's, this is the point. There's never enough in life. Um, that is very similar to the way that I feel like this morning has gone. It's like there's no chairs. There's no keys. There's no what's happening. And then it's just, it, it, and I feel like oftentimes when, when Christmas comes around, that's the busyness of things. Especially if you've got little kids, there's like a rush that happens. And I feel like the season in general is like that. And so uh, as I was praying over what to share during this sort of in-between Sunday, uh, God laid this sermon on my heart. Um, and we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 15 and 16. And it talks about basically the way that Jesus would retreat into silence and solitude on a regular basis. And that's what God placed on my heart uh, for this week. And then, you know, we, we, I, I tried to be very intentional yesterday in being present with the kids. It's Christmas time. We're going to lean in. It's going to be fantastic. And I did. And I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, God put that on my heart. I'm going to set it aside. And then, be present, and we were, and it was great, and it's like, but there's still just the rush of everything, and we're actually leaving. We're going to go to Pennsylvania tomorrow. We did Christmas with my parents uh, last week in North Carolina, and then we're going to do Christmas in Pennsylvania with her parents, and we're being present here with the church, and it's still very rushed, right? Like, you guys ever feel this around Christmas time? Maybe just life in general? And, and it feels very rushed, and it's hustling, and, it's, it feels, and, I'm, and I'm praying about this, and it feels like it's easy to get caught up. Like, it's just like that musical chairs thing, right? Like, you're running around, and it's the noise and everything. And it reminds me of, honestly, how it felt when I first came to Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Like, the music stops, and I felt like my life, was like a big noisy distraction that came to a screeching halt when I was encountered by Jesus. Right? Like I'm, I'm running around, distracted by the noise of this world, and then suddenly all the noise stops and I find myself alone and without a place to sit and rest. Like I've got no place. It seemed like everyone else around me had a place to sit. They had a place to rest. Because I was encountered by people who were actually Christians for the first time. Right? And I, I went to, it was kind of like a big event. It was a, a week-long event, like a, a, a summer camp type situation, and I was almost 18 when I went. And, and I, I remember the preacher was phenomenal, but it wasn't the preacher. The music was great, but it wasn't the, the, the music, right? And all the people, they had testimony after testimony. They talked about Jesus, and there was, this, there was something different about him, but it wasn't even them. It was all of those things, yes, but it wasn't those things in general. It was what all of those things, I should say, who all those things were pointing to. It was, it was who they were pointing to and what they were talking about or who they were talking about. And I, I was confronted by the truth of Jesus during an event, but it, the truth is that it hit me in the sound of silence afterward. God came to me in that silence, and that's when I realized I didn't have a chair to sit in. When everything comes to a screeching halt, right? When I've got to get to church, and it's like, car doesn't work. And I can figure out how to jump. I mean, you should have seen me. I had dropped cords out, man. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. Right? But it didn't work. And I had to sit there silently. You know how loud silence is? When you're alone and you can't, I, couldn't, I can't do anything. I'm helpless. I got nothing. Right? And I'm like, I can, I can 
refine the servant. Right? God's like, stop. You literally prepared a sermon about this right now, and I'm going to make you do it. Right? And that's when he meets us, and that's when he transforms us, and that's when he changes us. That's how he did it in the beginning, and that's how he continues to do it today. Because I, I realized then, as a teenager, that I was just running around preoccupied by the music and the noise of this world. Musical chairs. But the music stopped, and I had nowhere to go. And when the noise and the music stopped this morning, I had somewhere to go. And honestly, it wasn't here. He is here, yes. And he's called me to do this, yes. But he was right there. And he's the sovereign king. He's got it handled. Amen? Even in the midst of the noise, even in the midst of all of it, when it comes to a screeching halt, that's where God wants to meet us. And this is where God wants to go deep with us. And this is where he does his best work in our hearts. It's not in the hustle. It's not in the rush. It's not even in those highly charged moments where you know that the Holy Spirit's speaking through the preacher and he's speaking right to your heart. Don't get me wrong. Look, hear me. Those are great. I love them. They're fantastic. Right? But the real moment of truth comes after. It happens in the silence, and it happens in the stillness, and it happens in the solitude, and it happens when it's just you and God. It happens in the moment when you're tempted to check out and to escape into your phone or Netflix or find somebody or something to distract you from yourself or the current things that are just rushing through your mind and your thoughts, right? It happens when you're desperately looking for somebody to turn the music back on with. So you don't have to deal with what's awaiting in the silence. Looking for something or someone to drown out that encounter that's been beckoning you since before you were even born. This is that chair that's waiting for you. But the question is, and I think what really creates the insecurity, is is there going to be a chair? there like what if there's no place to rest what if all the chairs are gone and the music stopped and I'm just alone and it's not silence and solitude it's just isolation and abandonment part of faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God that he has a chair for you there and he has a place of rest he has, he has a space and a place for you, and it's in Christ, and it's even in the silence and the solitude. And so, again, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Even weeks ago, I was praying about what to preach in this sort of layover Sunday, right? And he put Luke 5, 15 through 16 on my heart, and it says this. Whew. But now, verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now this is right at the beginning of Christ's three-year ministry. This is like right out of the gate, man. He's just called his first disciples earlier in the same chapter, and things are starting to get really busy for him. But, but, but the busyness, as it all ramps up in his life and in his ministry, as it all increases, he seems to be more and more intentional in pulling away to silence and solitude to pray. But why? And, and what does it mean for us, right? Like, Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he never does anything carelessly, right? Everything he does is intentional. 
especially everything that he does that was recorded in the Bible, right? And so this, this practice of seeking God the Father in silence and solitude is extremely common for him. It's a common practice. He did it all the time. In fact, we've got around 30 recorded examples of Jesus doing this in the Bible. And we're, we're able to see multiple reasons for why he does this kind of thing. Right? At the beginning of, of Luke 4, Jesus does this. It says it talks about him. Well, we can see that he does it to be strengthened for his ministry. The very first thing he does is retreat to the wilderness. And by retreat, he actually pursues the enemy. Like he goes into the desert. Silence and solitude. He goes after him. And in this time period, there's a lot of strengthening that happens and reliance that he has upon the Lord. In Matthew 14, he does it through, uh, or he does it as he's working through very real grief to find rest and restoration. He's just lost his friend John the Baptist, who was just beheaded, and he retreats into or withdraws into silence and solitude to pray. In Mark 1, he does it simply to, to pray and spend time with his father. And, and I say retreat. I want to catch that because I don't think that he's retreating. Like, I think that there's more of an advancing here. Does that make sense? Like, I think when he, it says withdraw, I don't think that that's a great image because I think that there is, it's not a withdrawing. He's not retreating. There's nothing passive about it. He's engaging does that make sense? It's like there's like life in this fallen world has caused him and oppressed him and pushed on him. And he is pushing back, but he's pushing back into the presence of God. That's what he's doing. And he's demonstrating how we are also to do this. That's why I think in Luke 4 it says that he, the way that he goes into the wilderness is that he's seeking out. He's, he's the one in pursuit. He's not running from anything. And then again, in, in Mark 1, he does it simply to pray and spend time with his father. In John 6, he does it to stay focused on God's timing and priorities. When others are trying to force their own timing on him, he's focused on what God has. They want to make him king then, and he's going, nah, I need to focus on what God has right now. Even though he is king, he's like, I'm going to focus on you right now. In Luke 6, he does it to seek God's direction. And in Mark 6, he even invites his disciples to join him in it as a kind of like invitation into this regular rhythm of life. And so the busier things get, again, the more deliberate Jesus gets with spending time in silence and solitude with God. And Jesus, again, I, what I want you to see, and every time when you look in the Gospels, when you look in the record of Jesus' Jesus's life, he comes, he came to graft us into the father-son relationship that he has with God the Father. And so everything that he does is intentionally designed to take us deeper into that relationship with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't just proclaim and provide the way to abundant life. He was the living embodiment of it. And so he was a living, breathing demonstration of abundant life and what that looks like in this world. Remember, Jesus said himself that he was, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. And the way the Son interacts and operates with the Father is the way that he's called you also to do, to operate in this world, and us. So for us, that, that only means that we, we're placing our faith. Christianity is not just about placing our faith in what he did for us at the cross and resurrection. But it's living in the abundant ways of life that he's provided us now through the cross and resurrection. Right? We're not just checking the box like I prayed the prayer, I'm good. It's like, okay, now there's so much more. Now I'm seeing in color. And this world's constantly trying to take those gospel lenses off our eyes. So Jesus is showing us how to live as his redeemed people in a fallen world. He's not just showing us how to survive in this world. He's showing us how to be light in the dark. He's showing us how to be conduits of grace and ambassadors and regents and even sons and daughters of the most high king in a world full of slaves. That's what he's doing. 
He's showing us how to live in this world as a chosen race and a holy nation and a royal priesthood. He's showing us what it looks like to be the mediators who introduce the lost world to the holy creator, king of the whole universe. He's showing us how to thrive in the abundant life of men and women who are walking out the greatest assignment the universe has ever seen. Even when you lock your keys in the car, even when your battery doesn't work, even when you mess up and you're like, ah, you're still connected to abundant life. The greatest assignment in the universe, the great commission to go and make disciples who make disciples right? He's showing us how to live in the overflow, how to live in the fullness of the Spirit, how to live in the abiding presence of the Father, even in a fallen and dark world, even in the busyness of life, even when things don't work out the way you think they should have, right? Over and over again, we see Jesus resting in the midst of the race by intentionally seeking God in prayer-filled silence and solitude. So, Here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. <laughs> God wants to meet with you, renew you, and restore your soul in the silence and the solitude. So I was at a conference not too long ago, and Ray Ortland and his wife, uh, I think it's Janny, is that her name? Janny? Uh, they're being interviewed, and this is the sweetest couple. And these two, they're like power couple of ministry, right? Like they've been doing ministry for decades. They're, they're kind of in that season of life now where they're from an older generation and they've walked through so many different seasons of ministry and they, they have a ton of wisdom to share, right? And so as a pastor, I'm like hanging on their every word because I'm going like, that's what I want to be when I grow up, right? And so I'm at this conference and I, I noticed that they're constantly talking about their quiet times with God. You know that phrase, quiet time, right? It's kind of a, uh, unfortunately, almost like an old school phrase that Christians used to use. Quiet time. How's your quiet time? And I suddenly realized that phrase isn't really used as much as it used to be. They used it like every other word, like constantly talking about their quiet times and what God is doing in their quiet times, what God revealed to them in their quiet times and how God exposed things in their heart during their quiet times, how God spoke to them and how they prayed during their quiet times. Like every other phrase they said had to do with their quiet times. And, and, and it, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, man, we don't really talk about that much. Like it almost, when we say, people talk about quiet times, it almost feels like it has like a cheesy youth group quality to it sometimes. Right? So I leaned over to a friend of mine who's also a pastor. And uh, I mean, this guy's like brilliant philosophy, PhD type guy, you know, and, and he's also got kind of like a dry humor kind of personality. And I was like, why don't we talk about quiet times? Like, it seems like people kind of avoid it, like it's a childish thing from the past and we've kind of grown out of it. And without missing a beat, he looked over and he goes, Yeah, we used to just call that Christianity. Right? And I'm like, I, I still do. I still do. <laughs> right? Like, like I, and, and honestly, I don't care what you call it. Call it quiet time. Call it Jesus time. Call it prayer time. Right? Silence and solitude with God matters. Like, it, it doesn't matter what you call it. It matters that we engage in it and we let him engage us in it. So for the rest of our time, I want to briefly go through seven quick things about what it is. I want to point out seven things about what it is and why it's important to regularly meet with God in silence and solitude. Even in this what is supposed to be downtime, it ends up being extremely hurried, rushed, and noisy. <laughs> but ultimately, silence and solitude with God or quiet time isn't Christianity for beginners. It's Christianity for Christians. So it's like eating and breathing for humans. Like these things aren't simply the regular rhythms of life. They're life. And but they need to be the regular rhythms of life, right? So the first thing I want to point out here is that silence and solitude is a necessary and continual rhythm of life in Christ. 
right? Verse 16, we just read it. It said that Jesus would withdraw. It says he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So I want you to notice that this phrase is worded very specifically here. Like the phrasing indicates that this is something Jesus did continually. And the original Greek actually drives that point home even harder. Because the Greek uses what's called an imperfect verb here, which emphasizes that it's a continual nature. What he's doing is continual. In other words, Jesus was regularly or continually withdrawing and praying. We'll talk a bit more about that in a bit, but I want you to see that this rhythm is as natural and continual for him as breathing or eating. In fact, sometimes he does it in fasting to say it's even more important than eating. Because man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the Father. Amen? This is what he's talking about. So these are the basics of life, no matter how far along you get. It's like when Vince Lombardi, you guys remember that guy? Anybody, men? Anyway, Vince Lombardi walks into the locker room for the Green Bay Packers during the training camp, right? These are the most elite football players, the NFL Guys, like they are professional footballers. The whole life has been about football. And he walks in, and first thing he says is he holds up a football and he says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Right? That's how he kicks it off. Church, this is a quiet time. Right? Super important. Point number two, silence and solitude with God is life-giving because it's oriented towards God. So silence and solitude with God is life-giving because it's oriented towards God. So this seems like a given, but it's, it's not, especially more and more today in what we would call, many people call like new age theology stuff, right? Like new age spirituality. Like we're not just talking about meditative breathing exercises, this is important. Like we're not talking about a vacation. I'm not talking about a change of scenery here. Yes, those things are good, and yes, that can be involved in it, but the point of all of it is to refocus, realign, and be renewed by the presence of the one true God. You guys ever been on a vacation, gotten home, been like, man, I need a vacation? You know? So this isn't just emptying your mind and opening it to whatever spiritual offerings the universe may provide you. That's not what we're talking about. That's often what people mean when they talk about prayer and meditation, but that's simply an exercise in emptying yourselves and detaching from the world and being filled with more of the world. What we're talking about here is the Discipline of intentionally drawing near to the spirit of truth in spirit and truth. So it's Godward in orientation. So just because somebody, you know, thinks like I had a spiritual encounter, that doesn't mean it's a spiritual encounter with God. Right? Just because an idea pops into your head, it doesn't mean it's an idea from God. Just because a miracle takes place, it doesn't mean that God is the one behind that miracle. Remember, the ruler of the prince of the air that we live in in this fallen world is the prince of darkness. And he does supernatural junk all the time. And he will fill your mind with stuff that may kind of feel good and suck you dry. Right? Just because you encounter something supernatural, it doesn't mean it's from the Lord. So that's why... That we, we want to lean into his word and his presence. This isn't just spiritual time. This is Jesus time. Say, Jesus time. Jesus. <laughs> so point three, quiet time with God isn't just a means to greater purpose. It is the greater purpose. <sighs> I can preach for weeks on this one. Quiet time with God is not just a means to a greater purpose. It is the greater purpose. Look, this kind of thing gets presented a lot as like a necessary step towards being a better Christian. Right? You can level up your Christianity here if you do more quiet times. 
right? Like we're such a productive oriented, we're such like an achievement oriented society. We're such like a works righteousness, I can do it, I can be better, I can work harder type people. That so much we use this as like a means to an end rather than the end. It's not a means to a greater purpose of being more awesome. The point is relationship with him. Now, of course, like, that's a good thing, and we want to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus, but this easily gets twisted because we tend to be a works righteousness kind of people. Like, we're constantly trying to figure out the path to success so we can achieve some higher status of our Christian journey. And while this does get, this is a fundamental part of the Christian journey, like, I'm not sitting here giving you, like, steps to awesomeness in Christianity, Okay? I'm telling you what Christianity is. Like the whole point of the gospel is to bring us into right relationship with us so that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High King. And what do sons and daughters do? When daddy's a good daddy, they crawl up in daddy's lap. You have access to that lap. Take advantage of it. Like, we got to be careful because those kinds of self-oriented ambitions for success can hijack this thing, turn it upside down. Like, we think quiet times is a means to an end of being a better person, and, and yet, like, it's not a means to an end. It is the end in itself. And, and, and we can easily kind of, when we do that, that's when it becomes a burden. That's when we start thinking of quiet times. Somebody says, oh, how's your quiet time? And you think you're, like, ashamed because you didn't do one. Or haven't done one in like three years, you know? And you're like, ugh. But then if you had one this morning and someone asked you, you're like, dun 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 dun. <laughs> Let me tell you about my quiet time. <laughs> right? But none of that is what it's about. Right? It's not about pride or shame. And hear me, guys. If somebody asks you about your quiet time, say thank you. If it was non-existent, be like, pray for me. Because I want that. I want it more. If you're struggling with it, pray for me. You're not going to get judged, and if you are, send them to me. <laughs> right? And, and don't stop. A- ask yourselves about it, because the point is that we're talking about our daddy. He's a good, good father. Right? And this world crowds this stuff out. You gotta make time. We gotta be intentional in this. But it's not about our acceptance level by one another or by Him. It's because we are accepted, and that's why we won't do it. And we don't wanna lose sight of the reality that we are accepted. That's why we do it. We don't wanna miss the point. Maturity is a byproduct of these times. Yes, yes, you'll grow in your relationship with Jesus. But again, the point is relational communion with him, enjoying him, knowing him, being known by him, loving him, being loved by him. This is what brings him the most glory. This is what transforms us, and this is what equips us for the commission that he's given us. And if, so if the concept, again, is a source of pride or shame for you, then you've missed the point, Right? Like, these are moments where the veil is pulled back, and it's not just the means to an end. It is the end. It is the point. And so the majority of the time when Jesus withdraws to pray, it gives no reason at all. It just says he went to spend time with his father, or he just went and did it. Why? Because it matters to him. Because he loves the father. That's it. So one of my favorite passages is in the book of Exodus where Moses is meeting with uh, the manifest presence of God in what's called the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. And he invites Joshua, his like assistant, to go with him. This is what it says in Exodus 33, verse 7 through 11. Um, it says this, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. So remember, they're in the desert. They're, all of them are in tents. And so Moses takes a tent and he pitches it outside away from everyone else, right? Far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, in silence and solitude. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into his tent. 
When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, which is a picture of the manifest presence of God, uh, would descend and stand at the... I'm sorry, where am I? Today's been a crazy morning. Verse 9, yeah. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used, or the, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is my favorite part. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. It's like a simple add-on at the end. Why? Why did he stay? It's like Joshua was like, I'm here. Moses leaves. Joshua's like, I'm not going anywhere. He's just basking in the presence of God. You see, that's what Moses passed on to Joshua, and Joshua was the one that would lead the people into the promised land. What did he pass on? What was the greatest form of discipleship that he gave to Joshua? A love for the presence of God. And that was the greatest thing that could equip him for what God was calling him to do. Like he's not in there just trying to get some extra leadership juice. Right? That's not what he's doing. He loved the presence of God. He wanted more of God. He didn't want more stuff from God. He wasn't going, give me more anointing. He was going, give me more God. I want to know you. I want to know you more and more. I want to be known by you. And when you get to know God, you get to know his heart. And then you realize that he is extremely missional. And that's when you cry out for that anointing and power and wisdom and strength to endure because your heart breaks for what breaks his. Because you realize that there is work to do, but the work isn't the point. Knowing God is the point. Enjoying him. This is the mission. Knowing him and enjoying him and inviting others to join. Point number four. Solitude is different than isolation. Not the same thing. Solitude is different than isolation. Isolation is about who or what you're separated from. Solitude is about who you're drawing near to. Okay? So hear me. Gospel community is extremely important. Amen? We are a communal people. Regularly gathering together with God's people as God's people is a major priority. Preached a whole series on this one, right? Church people, go back. It's on, it's on the website. It's called Church People. But spending time with God and his people always goes hand in hand with spending time with God in a personal and even individual way. Always. Like these two rhythms are not exclusive of each other. They inform each other. In fact, if you're not spending time with Jesus in silence and solitude, then you're going to have a really difficult time engaging in real gospel community. Because it's going to feel like others know something or someone that you don't because they do. Because they know that when the noise stops and the music stops, they have a chair. The point of the gospel or I should say, the point of gospel community is to experience the goodness of God together and to point one another to him individually, even. Like, we are not a codependent people, but neither are we a self-reliant people. We're a people dependent upon God and used by God to love one another. And, and yet, the only way that that's possible is when we experience firsthand the love of God in those secret and silent places where it's just you in the Lord. Both of these rhythms require intentionality. Like silence and solitude isn't the spiritual rhythms uh, for the introverted. <laughs> right? Like it's not like gospel community is the spiritual discipline and rhythm for like the extroverted people. 
And then, and then silence and solitude is for the introverts. It's not what it is at all. In fact, again, if that's your perspective, then you've missed the point of both because both disciplines are about experiencing and enjoying God. And quiet time with God is not about checking out from other people. It's about checking in with him. Because that's the temptation of an introvert, right? You're not looking for solitude. You're looking for isolation. Because silence and solitude with God is about engagement and community with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not about isolation. It's about checking in, not checking out. It's about being fueled by him, not being fueled by loneliness. Like, I don't even know what that means. When talk, people talk about like, oh, well, I just need to recharge by getting away from people. Like, I realize I'm not very introverted. I hear you. Okay? But the point of checking out from people around you is not to just quiet your mind and stare at a wall. It's to check in with him. Otherwise, you're going to be the master of your own destiny. You're going to be your own God. There's a temptation there. Okay? And so I wanna, there's a warning. You're not just checking out. You're checking in. Okay? Because he is our all in all. And for the extroverts, it's really easy to make people your God and be dependent on them for your spiritual journey and walk. And then when there are no people, you're like, what do I do? And God's going, I'm right here. When the music stops and you're like, there's no chair. Jesus is going, yeah, there is. Right? Because he is our all in all. So there's four common, and number five, here we go. Silence and solitude with God is one of God's primary methods for spiritual deliverance. Let's say it again. Silence and solitude with God is one of God's primary methods for spiritual deliverance. There's four common tactics that the enemy uses. Kind of a famous thing here, because they're, I don't know if it's like a, the, the alliteration of it all, but maybe you've heard this before. The four tactics of the enemy are deception, division, discouragement, and distraction. If you haven't heard that before, you're welcome. Right? But we tend to heavily focus on the first three. Like we focus heavily on deception and division and discouragement. Those are all tactics of the enemy for sure, right? But the most common and the most ignored is distraction, especially in our society. Silence and solitude delivers us from the deceptive distractions of the world around us and the ongoing lies that have gotten in us. Silence and solitude enables us when we're in prayer and we're looking to him. It enables us to even hear the ongoing narrative that's playing in the background of our lives that we just have been trying to drown out and yet it is still informing everything we do and the way we think. It's that loop of lies that we tend to believe and we don't really even know why. and We don't know why we can't get it to stop playing. Like we just try to drown it out with distraction, but it keeps going. Like you're abandoned, you're inferior, you're not good enough, you're overwhelmed. It's all going to go wrong. It's already gone wrong. Remember that conversation that you just had the, the other day, and it plays in your head over and over. How could I have done that wrong? What do they mean by that? What are they thinking? And then you're thinking, what's going to happen in the future? What about my parents? What about my family? What about that relationship? What about my kids? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? What if this will happen? What if this could have happened differently or should have happened differently? What if what happened to me is going to happen again? Like if that happened, then what else could happen? It just ingrains in our subconscious and it it's just toxic in our soul. It's that conversation you can't seem to get out of your head. It's that shame and the pain of that experience that's informing everything we do, and it's a cycle. And you're scared to death to go there, so you surround yourself with people and noise and distraction. 
But the beat goes on and on and on and on. See, there's two forms of silence. There's external silence and there's internal silence. Oftentimes we think of this and we think of external silence, right? We think, because that's the easy stuff. That's the solitude stuff, right? That's easy. You deal with external silence through solitude, right? Put the phone down, right? Cut the TV off. Just find a space and a place where you're not going to be distracted, but then the sound of silence gets louder and louder, and those voices start talking. And when you're left alone with your own thoughts, that internal silence can be overwhelming. Because it's a whole new realm, and it's a realm that our society does not know how to deal with. Because the only one who can silence those voices is God himself. He's the only one who can speak truth. It's his word alone that can take those thoughts captive and bring stillness and calmness to the waters. And that happens in silence and solitude. This is how God regularly renews us and delivers us from the lies of the enemy. This is where we realize that there is, in fact, a chair for us to rest in. Then we experience that. And then the noise of this world just becomes that. Like, could you imagine if you were in the musical chairs thing and you're like, you have a guaranteed chair? Like, you know how the kids do it? And you've seen them, they're just like... (laughs) And they're just like, no! And then they see the chair and it's like, I can't pass the chair. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody, you, know what I'm t- you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? Like there's the chair and they don't want to leave the chair. You know what I'm talking about? That's how it is. You don't want to leave that place of rest. You don't want to come down from the mountain. When Christmas is over, I don't want to get back to work. I don't want to get back to the regular rhythms of life because that was rest when you're petrified of what's going on in there because you don't know when you're going to get back to that chair and it might not be there next time. But if you had a guaranteed chair, whee! Right? That's what we're reminded of when we have these regular rhythms of silence and solitude in Christ. When we meet with Him and we know that there's rest for us in Him, not in anything else, but in Him, in Christ alone. And that's when we can be still and know that he is God. And that his love is real and is steadfast and secure and it's never ending and it's unrelenting. And it's unconditional. I can't tell you that. Nobody else can get that into your heart and soul. That can only come from the creator himself. That's it. Only from him. Point six. Silence and solitude provides the landscape for true transformation and renewal. Again, it often requires sometimes a change of scenery, right? 2 Samuel 19 is a story of uh, Elijah, and he has been through some crazy stuff, okay? He is actually at this point in his life kind of a basket case. All right? He's seen God move in radical ways. He knows God is powerful. He's seen him deliver. There was a point at which God, he, he literally killed 450 prophets of Baal and saw God consume an altar with fire in front of him. He saw God come through over and over and over again. And in this scenario, he has just been completely in just a place of despair and depression. Like his emotions after all of the highs are just insane and overwhelming for him and he doesn't know what to do with them and he's crying out to God and God sustains him he sustains him with meat from crows it's crazy he sustains him with water God's going I've got you I'm providing for you I want you to trust in me 
And then he says, now I want you to walk all the way over here. I want to meet with you in a specific and manifest and special way on this mountain. So he journeys, and he's like just through this whole process. He goes up on this mountain, and this is the story. He gets up there, and God says, I'm going to meet with you. In fact, I'm going to pass you by. Okay? And then it says this, um, or it says, uh, scratch the pass you by thing. It says he's going to meet with you. He'll talk to you. And then all of a sudden, there's a, there's a, a, a fire consumes the mountainside, engulfs the whole mountainside. That'd be pretty epic, right? Pretty loud. Grabs your attention. But it says God was not in the fire. And then an earthquake comes and shakes the whole mountain. Woo! It's a great conference, man. That was awesome. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then it says that a massive wind blew like a hurricane. Really loud. Really noisy, really epic, but it says God is not in the hurricane. And then it says that God came to him. And the Hebrew word, it says, it, it says that God came to him in the stillness, right? And the Hebrew word is like the small it's, it's like a whisper. It's, not a, it's like the small, secret, still whisper. In the quiet, in the silence, in the solitude, that's where God met him. It wasn't in the woo! It was in the shh. Nothing wrong with the woo. Like I, right? But oftentimes, God does all of that to get your attention in the shh, right? Because if, you're just, if you just have this and you just go on, that's when, that's when you live for the mountaintops and you're in complete despair in the valley. But when you lean into the small, still voice of God who's continually speaking, he's with you everywhere. That's true transformation. This is the God who's with us and speaks to us. This is the landscape that we're truly transformed. It's not just a flash in the pan. It's not just a momentary thing. It's stable, it's prolonged, and it's eternal. And he's molding us and shaping us and renewing our souls. And then finally, last point, silence and solitude with God requires rhythms of intentionality. He's calling, will you answer? So I want to close with an application here, just quick applications, rhythms and, of silence and solitude. And the first one is like breathing. It's like those, those all in the cracks of life, like you're, breathe, you're just always breathing, right? If you stop breathing, your, your body, like the science behind not breathing is that you actually like, it's not that you not only need more oxygen, it's that you're being poisoned by the carbon dioxide that you're not breathing out. Right? Because this world is filled with toxicity. You've got to breathe it out. And you've got to be breathing in oxygen. You've got to breathe yourself out. You've got to breathe him in. Continually recognizing this in the, in the cracks of life, in the car, in the shower, waiting in line. Talk to him. Be mindful of him. What is he? God, what do you think of me right now? And then, God, what do you think of them right now? Let him download his perspective of the people waiting in line at Starbucks. Really, truly. And I don't mean the like self-righteous like, ah, yeah, they're all horrible. Like, let him break your heart for people. And often, let him encourage you, man. There's some people that, like, you see stuff. I see stuff all the time. It's like, man, that was, that was a sweet situation where you just see, like, a, a, an old man and an old woman that you're, like, they just love each other really well, right? Like, those little things that are encouraging or like a little child. There's little things. God will meet you there. That's the joy of being present in every moment and walking with Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it like this. this is a, he's put it in, in um, screw tape letters. He says the, the, 
Uh, it, it's like the, it's, Screwtape Letters is an epic book, by the way. Um, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. But there's a, uh, it, it's a, a letter that's about like uh, one demon to another, and they're talking about how to basically distract the client, which is the human, from God, right? And he says, whatever is going on, whatever's happening, do whatever it takes to keep them out of the present moment. Have them thinking about what's happened before or what will happen later, but keep them out of the present. Keep them preoccupied and distracted from thinking about those other things because the present is the point at which time touches eternity. And if they get in the present and they become thankful for this present grace or this present sunset, then you'll never be able to get at them. So in the cracks of life, be mindful and present with Jesus. That's the first one. So it's like breathing. And then the second one is like your daily bread. You got to be intentional in eating. Right? However, I don't know, some of you guys do like the the intermittent fasting and all that stuff. Either way, you got to eat. You got to take time, whether it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or whatever it is. Every day, you've got to specifically be intentional in spending time nourishing yourself. So this is the daily bread. Every day, 10 to 15 minutes, get in his word. Spend time praying. Find a place to to find some silence and some solitude and to pray and be intentional with God. Exercise this discipline every day. If you want a a, a simple help, like SOAP, right? You ever heard that? SOAP, S-O-A-P? Scripture, observation, application, prayer. Read the scripture, make some observations about it, ask God, how do you want me to apply this in my life, and then pray and ask him for help. SOAP. (laughs) And then finally, feasting. So we've got breathing, we've got eating like daily bread, So breathing, like in the cracks of life, we've got eating like daily bread every day, and then feasting, which are like those festivals that they had in Scripture, like a Christmas time kind of thing, where it's just like, I'm going to have a kind of more prolonged or extended time of silence and solitude, right? You need to do these types of things. We're going to talk a little bit more about this stuff as we go forward uh, in the the coming weeks, but um, things like fasting and prayer, I want one of the most... Um, amazing. God has met me in times like this where you just take a whole day and it's like, God, I'm just going to go meet with you. I, I remember when I was probably, gosh, 20 years old, something like that. I once uh, read through the whole book of Psalms in one sitting. I went and sat on the beach in North Carolina and sat down and, and literally did not leave that beach. I had to get up and move around a little bit, but I read through every one of them and prayed. And it, I will, it, the, the Lord downloaded stuff into my soul that I still feast on. Just moments where you just can get away and focus. And I realize that with kids and the ins and outs of life that this is difficult, but I want you to be intentional. And I want to encourage spouses to help their spouses do this. And so, yeah, feasting, breathing daily bread, and feasting. God wants to meet with you. He wants to renew you. He wants to restore your soul. He wants to do it in the silence and the solitude. Let's pray.